All right, could we turn please to Romans chapter 2? Romans 2, we're ready to navigate some very tricky territory here. And so there may be some revisions after the fact, and I reserve the right to do that. This is a very tricky passage. We're going to try to take it on. When I said Sunday, incidentally, that I was... I had bigger fish to fry than the rich man and Lazarus. I wasn't in any way dismissing that as an insignificant teaching because I do plan to do that and before too long. So I don't want you to think that. But Romans is capturing my full attention. And again, this Romans 2, 1 to 16 is very tricky. Because it's, well, I'll explain why as we go along. I think you'll see why. Let's take a couple moments. Silent prep. SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. A few silent moments. Father, we thank you for each and every person who's gathered here tonight, taking this option to explore the truth of your word and to learn of the unconditional and unrestricted goodness that you have demonstrated to us in your son. And we're so grateful, Father, that the lie is being put to a gospel that is so-called which proclaims your wrath. And we thank you for the privilege of a gospel that proclaims your unconditional grace. We ask that you'll grant us the grace to accurately handle this passage as you grant us the grace to accurately perceive it and exegete it throughout. Because we know that in these verses and in this letter to the Romans, there is extraordinary and overflowing hope, not only for ourselves and those we love, but for the whole of the human race and all of creation. So may the Holy Spirit allow hope to overflow in each of us and each listener here tonight. And may that overflow to others with whom we have contact. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been struggling for a way to describe these next, what's going on in these next verses in Romans chapter 2. And I think one of the best analogies is what occurs in Romans 118 to 320. It's a section in which Paul is really fighting for the truth of the gospel against a gospel of deserving, of human deserving and human action against a gospel that splits the human race into the saved and the damned. And so what occurs in Romans 118 to 320 is analogous to a mixed martial arts fight in which Paul engages in two forms of martial arts. First, jujitsu, spiritual jujitsu, which is famous for using the force of your opponent against him 
And that's what Paul does. He uses the force of the argument of this false gospel teacher against him. The rhetorical battle is also a kind of spiritual, one that's not as well known as the martial art called Wing Chun. And maybe you've seen it on TV or some action films. It's like the two fighters are inches apart. They never go too far away, and they're doing all these infinitely complex movements, being only inches away, and they never lose contact with each other. And so it's a kind of martial art. That's what's going on here, metaphorically, spiritually, rhetorically, between Paul and an opponent. Paul is like William Money in the Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven. The big line being, deserves, got nothing to do with it. Now, I also see Douglas Campbell's reasoning here, which we explored a little bit in Better Call Paul, that in this passage, 118 to 320, Paul essentially takes a citadel. He captures the primary fortress of a gospel which propagates a salvation by the works of the law, by human action, we might say. He takes the citadel. In fact, we could go all the way through Romans 4 and see that that's exactly what he's doing. So we studied Romans 1.18 to 32 to show that that's not Paul, but a speech in character, often referred to in the ancient times as a prosopopoeia, which is a, allowing another person to speak. So those who hang their theological hats on Romans 118 to 32 as what Paul is teaching are misled. In fact, Paul retaliates against the tirade of this teacher. And that's what I'll call Romans 118 to 32, a tirade of a teacher, which really represents a bias that has infected some of the Roman Christians. And this is what he says in Romans 2.1. Therefore, you, O man. And I would say, O man, is representative of Paul's anthropology. We've heard of theology, ecclesiology, eschatology, angelology. Well, there's anthropology, biblical anthropology. Therefore, you, O man, Paul is replying against that turn or burn, hellfire and brimstone type thing in 118 to 32 by saying to the preacher, therefore, you, O man, that means mere mortal, are without excuse. You are without excuse. And he had just gotten done, this preacher, by saying that these Gentile pagans are without excuse because they did not respond properly to God's manifestation in creation. Paul's going to go on to say, true, the Gentiles did not respond properly to God's revelation of himself, his divinity and power in creation, but neither did the Jews respond properly to God's revelation in Torah. And what he does is bring all under 
the rubric of sin so that all can be justified by the response that Jesus Christ made to his father. I'm not saved because I've made a response to God. I'm saved because Jesus Christ responded to the father with a perfect faithful obedience that took him all the way to death by crucifixion, which was followed by a glorious resurrection from the dead. That's where we're going. Therefore, you, O man, are without excuse. And then he says, every one of you who judges, that's not only you, the preacher there, the teacher, but every one of you who judges, that is that group in Rome that may be disciples of this individual or disciples of teachers like this. And many fundamentalist Christians would fall into this place today. Protestants and Catholics would fall into this as well as perhaps Tetelestai church members or anyone else. For while you are judging another, you are condemning yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. This, of course, points out to Romans 3.10-18 where that will be fully demonstrated. But Wing Chung happens here they're really close together they're in close contact they're fighting in my view and this again may change it's very difficult to see this because there's no punctuation in our translation and Leander Keck as well as Douglas Campbell tried to do this and there's a translation someday coming out that punctuates this so that we see the teacher speak, the, and then Paul speaks. The teacher speaks, Paul speaks. The teacher speaks, Paul speaks. And it's, it's a mixed martial arts thing going on. So in my view so far, and this is a limited horizon, which may be revised, the teacher then responds in Romans 2. You see this by adversative conjunctions sometimes that separate the sentences. Imagine the teacher saying, but we know that the judgment of God upon those who practice such things is based on the truth. Paul, Romans 2, 3. But do you think, O oh man, once again, that any one of you who judges those who practice these things yet do the same things, that you will escape this wrathful judgment of God. The wrathful judgment of God in the day of wrath is not Paul's idea. That's not Paul's doctrine. He believes in a day in which there will be the secrets of men, the secrets of women, the secrets of all mankind will be judged or exposed but it will be through Jesus Christ who atoned for all mankind so the man here O oh man is ho anthrop where we get the word anthropology ho anthrop he says it deliberately O oh man remember you are a man you do not have omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence like God does and salvation is an action of God, not man. That's all that's hinted in this. So he uses ho anthrop, 
It looks like this in the Greek. It's H-O and then A-N-T-H-R-O-P. Anthrop or anthrope. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-E. Anthrop. That's an omega also. Let me do it in a clearer way here. Ho anthrop. This is Paul's anthropology. Ho a N T H R Omega O P Epsilon E. Ho anthrope. Oh man. In fact, I've titled this message Oh Man. Paul's Anthropology. It's used here in Romans 2 3, but it's also used in 2 1. And it's Paul's address against this teacher. It's also used in Romans 9.20 where he picks up on some of this thing again when he says, but who are you, O man, that replies against God? Shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Which eventually asks this question. Shall you, O Christian, reply against God, against his plan to save all mankind? Do you think God is about saving the church or is God about saving the world and making the church a witness to that fact? That's what's going on. God's action is to save the world. And the church is simply a provisional, temporary group of witnesses to that fact. He didn't come to save the church. He came to save the world and make the world the church, the bride to make all creation the broad. Now, in every case, when Paul uses ho-anthrop, he is accentuating the human being whose mere humanity is contrasted with the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent divinity of God. And this, in turn, supports the severe contrast between human action and divine action. The false gospel accentuates human action. It even goes so far as to accentuate or put the accent on human faith rather than divine faithfulness demonstrated in Jesus Christ, climaxing in his death and resurrection. So old man here has some heft behind it, some power behind it. The sermon against the Gentile idolaters, 118 to 32, began with a proclamation or a pronunciation of divine wrath, anger, fury, apocalypsed from heaven upon, as in 2-2, upon all of the impiety and unrighteousness of men. Now, of course, that means all mankind, but I'm emphasizing this Anthropon tonight, of the men upon whom God's wrath are those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, I've already shown there's many ways to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. One is by gross idolatry. The other is by refined legalism, by a gospel that accentuates human deserving. So here's the mirror. Paul is, to use another analogy, 
He holds a mirror up on you, O man, implying that this preacher or teacher is among the men upon whom God's wrath, based on truth and based on the impartiality of God, as this teacher himself sees it. What's Paul saying? He's saying, if this is as you see it, then you too come under this wrath. You see, he's using jujitsu here. He's using the energy and the force and the power of his enemy against himself. O man, then, is the interjection of Pauline anthropology, which is really biblical anthropology. Remember, we're reading Romans with the light on. We're not reading Romans in darkness. We're reading Romans with the light on. That's the name of the series. We know where this is going. The impartial truth of God is the basis for God's judgment on all the impiety and unrighteousness of human beings who suppress the truth or who hide the truth under a veil of unrighteousness. Jesus even said it to the religious leaders of his own time. Until I came, you had a cloak for your sin, a religious cloak. But he came and ripped the cloak away. That's what Paul's doing here. All human beings are indicted by this. The Gentile, with his distorted response to the disclosure of Elohim, the creator, in creation, and the Jew, with his distorted response to the disclosure of Yahweh in Torah. All human beings are justified by the perfect response of the Messiah who is not only Israel's Messiah, but the Savior of the world in John 4.42. All human beings are justified, rectified, set right by the perfect response of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to God his Father, which was an obedience of faithfulness that works by love, which led to the propitiatory death of Christ on the cross and his universally rectifying resurrection. Key verse here is Romans 4.25 always. He was delivered up for our trespasses. And that means the trespasses of all the world. 1 John 2.2. And he was raised up for our justification. And our is all. In fact, by Jesus Christ's blood, which is the culmination of his faithful obedience to God. Romans 3.25 speaks about it. Romans 5.9. Listen carefully to this. By Jesus Christ's blood, which is a term for his, the culmination of his faithful obedience to God. He was faithful what? To the extent of death. Obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name to which every knee will bow. So by Jesus Christ's blood, which is the culmination of his faithful obedience to God, Romans 3.25, we, all human beings, were justified, and by his life in resurrection, all are saved all the more from wrath through him. Jump to Romans 5.9. You'll see not wrath coming down on all humankind, but salvation from wrath by Christ's resurrection life, 
which is also rooted in our justification by his blood. Is there a contradiction there? Romans 5, 9 says we're justified. We have been justified by his blood, which is his obedience, his faithful obedience, culminating in death of the cross. Romans 4, 25 says he was raised from the dead for our justification. Is there a contradiction here? No, because the Christ event is one, even though it has facets, death, burial, and resurrection. These are all part of one Christ event. You're justified by the Christ event which is his faithfulness to the extent of death by the horrifyingly shameful act of crucifixion. His burial and then his resurrection from the dead. That's what justifies you. So being justified by faith, we have peace with God in Romans 5.1. We have to think about that. What are we talking about? If we're justified by his blood, if we're justified by his resurrection, if we're justified by the Christ event, then what faith are we talking about here? And could it be the faithfulness of Christ? Okay. We got a lot of room. We got a lot of time. I'm going to spend at least one or 200 hours on Romans. So taking my time. So note that we were justified by his blood and all the more then will we be saved from wrath. So there is no day of wrath from which we will not be saved. The day of wrath will be a judgment in righteousness, which is a judgment unto salvation, in which there will not be a double outcome, but a single salvific outcome. Single saving, salutary, we could say, outcome. Now, both Christ's death and his resurrection are two parts of one saving Christ event. In other words, his death and his resurrection are distinguishable, but they're not separable. They're part of one act that justifies. So there is no contradiction when it says we've been justified by his blood and we have been justified by his resurrection or saved by his life. It's all goes to, Paul said it, I think, in another place, did he not? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the aorist tense, that means having been crucified and also raised. Both Paul and his counterpart are deeply grounded in what is known as a Jewish apocalyptic. Jewish apocalypse, there are many apocalypses. There's the Ascension of Isaiah, the Apocalypse of Paul, the Apocalypse of Peter. There are Jewish and Christian apocalypses. Paul is among them. There were 30 apocalypses written, and we have distinct apocalypse of John, the distinctive apocalypse of John, which is a canonical apocalypse. But apocalypses were abounding at the time, and Paul was what we would call an apocalyptic theologian. So is his opponent. And this is brought into sharp relief in that both use classic apocalyptic terminology. Now, Sunday we went into the Dikaio rooted words, but there's apocalypto used by Paul in Romans 117, used by his opponent in 118. Only Paul's is an apocalypse of righteousness, which is a stunning 
revelation of God's saving act in Christ, while the other teachers is an apocalypse of God's anger and retribution against Gentile, especially idolaters. Although Jewish disobedient people don't get off the hook with this guy either. So, they use the word apocalypsis, the noun form. Paul used apocalypto also in Romans 8.18. Apocalypsis, which is a revelation or apocalypse. Romans 2.5, it's used. Romans 8.19, it's used. 16.25, it's used. Phanerao, which is a synonym, which means manifestation, but it's also an apocalyptic verb. Phanerao, that is also used in Romans 119 by the teacher, 321 by Paul, 1626 by Paul. And there's a battle I've got to fight when we get to Romans 625 and 26 again, which I'm going to hit about 30 times. And also the word musterion or mystery, that was an apocalyptic term also used throughout the apocalypse is used in two key places in the wisdom of Solomon, for example, 222 and 622 used also by Paul in Romans 11.25 and culminatively in 16.25. However, the difference between Paul as a, an apocalyptic theologian and this opponent who's unnamed is that Paul radically altered the content of the genre by saying that his gospel apocalypses or reveals not the wrath of God on the nations, but the saving act of God in Christ for all the nations, including Israel. Remember before there was a nation called Israel, God promised Abraham that in you, that is in your seed, Christ, all the nations will be blessed before there was a nation called Israel. All the nations will be blessed. It was the promise. And that includes Israel. There's no room for anti-Semitism in any Christian. There's no room for an anti-Gentile sentiment in any Christian. As we'll see. And as we already have seen, I think effectively enough so that you won't engage in it again without being slapped upside the head by the spirit of grace. So Paul changes the whole content. Ho anthropa gestures toward a particular kind of anthropology or a horizon of the view of mankind. No anthropos, that's man but human being also. No human being. As we said Sunday morning, nobody alive will ever be justified or considered righteous in God's view by any merely human means, least of all by human conformity to the Torah's strictures, not scriptures, but strictures. Salvation is a divine action. If you didn't get anything out of tonight's message so far, get that. Salvation is a divine action from beginning through the middle to the end. Salvation is of the Lord, Psalm 3.8. Salvation is of Yahweh, Jonah 2, 
verse 6. Jonah discovered that. Most Christians won't admit that until they're in a belly of a whale. And from what I've understood, it's not a very pleasant experience to be in the belly of a sea creature. So there's, <laughs> never mind, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of believers that are fighting this message tooth and nail. Some of whom have sat in this congregation, some of whom have sat in this congregation and went on to be pastors. I don't know what kind of belly or what kind of whale it's going to take, but they'll eventually say that salvation is of the Lord. And, and there, you say, how do you know that? Because it took that for me. It took that for me. I had to be up against the wall before I could see it. In fact, there was a time, I think, if you, I said something like, if you hear somebody say, if your pastor says there's a universal salvation, get the hell out of that church. I said that one time. And some people never forgot it. <laughs> so, so nobody's ever required to come here, to keep coming here. There's no obligation. Don't get me wrong on any of these things. So, it will be universally manifested. Salvation is a divine action, is the first thing you should understand thoroughly by now. It was enacted in the Christ event. Everything that's required to be done for the universal salvation of all mankind was done. When Jesus said to tell us die. One good Friday. But it will be universally manifested in the parousia or the second advent, in the eschaton as it's also called, or in the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom salvation has been and will be to all anthropon, all human beings. Titus 2.11, Titus 2.13. For all flesh together, all flesh altogether, all the humanity of all its times altogether will see the salvation of God or experience the salvation of the Lord. That's Isaiah 40 and verse 5 and Luke 3, 6. So again, we know where this is going. We're reading Romans with a light on. Paul is presenting an anthropology that will climax with all of humanity being constituted as unrighteous in Adam and all humanity, anthropon, being constituted as righteous in Jesus Christ. Romans five eighteen to 19. So in the anthropology of Romans the epistle, there are two men. As we've said before, history is, a, is about two men. And it's about two one-act plays. Just a one-act play. The one act of the one man, Adam, caused sin to come into the human race and embrace and put everyone under that power and headed toward a destiny of death. The second man, one act, an act of obedience which took his whole life but consummated in the cross and in his resurrection, 
brings all of humankind into the sphere of righteousness. For God has made Jesus Christ to be for us righteousness. 1 Corinthians one twenty, because he made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.19, connected with 1 Corinthians one thirty. So then, in the anthropology, or the study of mankind in Romans, the epistle, there are two men who bear the destiny of all human beings. Mankind is not split into two parts. Mankind is all in Adam, all die. All in Christ are made alive. Adam, in whom all are constituted as sinners, and Christ, in whom all are rectified with life. Romans 5.18. This anthropology is not unlike that which emerges in 1 Corinthians 15, especially in 15.22, where of all the translations, the King James got it more clear than anyone else. And it simply says, in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. Similar in effect, this anthropology is Yahweh's repeated use of son of man for Ezekiel. He says to Ezekiel, son of man, look at this. Son of man, think of this. Son of man, let me say this. And it's not son of man as used in Daniel, which is the Messiah. He's simply calling Ezekiel son of man as mere mortal. You, O man, he's saying the same way Paul's addressing this guy. You recognize that you are a man. Or we could say a human being. I'm just using the word man for that's what Ezekiel was. And still is for that matter. Yahweh addresses the prophet as son of man in the same way that Paul says man or O man to this man. Yahweh, the living God, is putting an infinite distance between himself and Ezekiel. The incomprehensible God shows us how incomprehensibly distant he is from us as creatures. Otherwise, we don't worship him. There has to be an infinite amount of distance between us before we appreciate not only the closeness, but the unity that we have in God in Christ. And so... When Yahweh says to Ezekiel, son of man, I love this in Ezekiel 37, 3, he says, son of man, he has a vision of a valley, and the valley is full of skeletons, bones. In fact, they're not even skeletal anymore. They're just scattered bones, and the bones have dried. The marrow is dried. They're dead, dry bones. And he says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, you know meaning only you can answer that question because only you can make dry, dead bones into living beings that walk and talk and live. Only you, God, can call things into existence that have no existence, and only you can raise the dead. Only you can take us when we're dead in trespasses and sins and make us alive in Christ, for by grace are we saved. Ezekiel 37.3, son of man, can these bones live? I, Ezekiel says, replied, Lord God, only you know. Yes, 
only Yahweh knows because only Yahweh can make dead bones live and make alive the dead in sin. Look at 2.4. Paul, now here's where I might differ. I don't know about this. I'm going to say I'm not sure. But I think Paul's still talking in 2.4. Paul says, and I think he's still doubling up on this guy, or do you despise the riches of God's goodness, that's his beneficence, and the clemency of his patience, being ignorant that the benevolence of God, that's his infinite goodness, is leading you to repentance. We would say the goodness of God evokes faith in someone. And Paul's actually saying, I think with gentle humor here, do you know what God's doing right now? As we have this rhetorical argument, the goodness of God is leading you to a conversion to my viewpoint. I think he's gently saying that. Plus, the reason I think that this is Paul speaking and not the teacher reacting to Paul is because he uses two words in 2, 3, and 4. He says, do you, you who judge and you who despise. Do you despise God's goodness? Do you judge these Gentiles? And that comes up again in Romans 14.10. The pincer strategy is helping us to interpret this beyond some of the other theologians and the way they've interpreted it. In any case, the word beneficence is Christotes in the Greek. Clemency is a word anoke. It's used to mean a holding back, a stopping especially of hostilities. It's a disposition to show mercy, especially to enemies, forbearance, tolerance in the face of provocation. It's clemency, which is mercy shown by someone with judicial authority. God has the judicial authority. He imprisons everybody, according to Romans 11.32. That's where we're going. According to his judicial authority, he sentenced all human beings to prison in disobedience for one reason that he may have mercy upon all. See, there's a uniformity in this epistle of God's mercy. In 2 Peter 3.15, we studied for three or four weeks, the writer writes of Paul who speaks in all his epistles about what? The patience of the Lord as salvation. And that's the word makrothumia, also used in Romans 2.4. So I think in this Wing Chung part, it's, they're so close together, sometimes you can't tell who's who, but I think that's Paul in 2.4. And this, this is why the combat's so intense here. Paul's gospel is about the irrepressible and unrestricted goodness of God. Here, Paul addresses the ignorance of the Jewish Christian teacher and his disciples. Paul will also confront the ignorance of the Gentiles, too especially in Romans 11.25, regarding the mystery of universal salvation. He essentially says, if you're ignorant of the mystery, all you can be is wise in your own estimation. And the mystery is that all Israel will be saved after all the Gentiles come in. In other words, the mystery is universal salvation. And when we're ignorant of it, we get so much wrong, so much wrong. And I'll be ironing some of these things out more and more. Let me just say this. Ignorance and arrogance, which is pride in one's own wisdom, are bedfellows. They always go together. 
ignorance, and arrogance. And I think Tony Sadar's message recently put that forth. That's true. If you put ignorance with arrogance, you get an ignoramus. And I could do a lot of other wordplay here, but it wouldn't be. It would be vulgar. So I won't do it. So then, of course I wouldn't. Notice here that this opponent of Paul thinks little of the riches of God's goodness, but he thinks quite a bit about God's apparent retributive anger. That is where so many Christians today find themselves. They put so much weight on what they think is God's retribution and anger, and so little on the unrestricted goodness of God. They don't know the gospel. They don't understand the gospel, which is the apocalypse of God's righteousness from faithfulness to faithfulness, God's faithfulness in Christ to Christ's faithfulness in us. By this, we can discern then that this opponent of Paul is a man who boasts in his own riches and in his own wisdom, as well as his own strength in the doing of works in accordance with the law. So Paul isn't just engaged in rhetoric here. It is rhetorical battle. But he's anticipating the conversion of his opponent. He's not trying to destroy him. He's trying to change his mind. And that's where a real debate is won. A debate isn't won when you crush your opponent. A debate is won when you bring your opponent around to your view. Paul's trying to bring this guy around to the view that salvation is of a totally unconditional, gracious character and has nothing to do with deserving. Now, this teacher believes that Jesus Christ died for the sins of Israel. He believes that Christ died for everyone's sins. But he also then says, but you've got to do the works of the law. You say, that's terrible. Well, what's the difference between someone who says, yes, Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, but you've got to invite him into your life. You've got to turn the control of your life over to him. You have to say a sinner's prayer. Be heartily sorry for your sins. You have to give up this or give up that. You have to do this or that. What's the difference between that and this teacher's gospel? Nothing. Because deserving's got something to do with it. That's the whole point. People say Christ died for your sins, but you have to believe with your own faith. Rather than the fact that God evokes faith, faith comes by the message. The hearing and the message is about Christ. Romans ten seventeen. So I know this is a difficult passage, and I understand it must be difficult for you to listen to because it was a hell of a thing to try to study out. So for me, but kataphroneo is used in Romans two four for despise. It's a synonym, however, for exutheneo in Romans. This will all be in print, so you'll see all these words. I'm not trying to be fancy. But in Romans 14.10, both means to despise. In other words, he says, do you despise the goodness that's leading you to repentance or evoking faith in the faithfulness of God in you, evoking a faith that works by love in you? Do you despise this goodness? Even the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem rejoiced in Acts eleven eighteen when God granted repentance to the Gentiles when Peter preached at Cornelius' house. He granted repentance, gave it to them. He evoked faith in them. 
And so if you jump, we're going to go back to 2-5 in a minute, but let's jump to 14-10 because we're doing the pincer movement from both flanks. Now you, Paul is speaking to the Jewish saint of the weak in faith minority. Why do you judge? That goes back to Romans 2-1. You who judge your brother or you Gentile saint, Greco-Roman believer of the strong in faith majority. Why do you despise your brother, the word despise here is used like it's used in 2.4. Do you despise the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Do you despise your brother whom God gave repentance to? See, that's how I'm interpreting this, and that's why I think Paul's speaking, not his opponent in 2.4. Although, as Dennis Miller would always say in his rants, I could be wrong. For you see, in 14.10, we will all be present to be accounted for at the judgment seat of God. And we've said that that judgment seat is when everyone is acquitted. I'll show you that in a minute. Now, let's got to speed up a little bit here to get this whole thing in. The whole point of the sermon in 118 to 32, not preached by Paul is that a wrathful judgment from God is being revealed or literally apocalypse from heaven on all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the point is, the preacher does not include himself and those who are his disciples in that wrath. Paul uses this to his own rhetorical advantage. He uses jujitsu in this one, takes the force and power of the opponent and uses it against him. Now, in verse 5, here's where the trick, it gets tricky, and I'm a little more certain about this. This is Paul saying what the teacher says. In other words, let me translate it this way. Paul is saying this. Now, you, teacher, say. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul doesn't say if you work really hard, you get eternal life from God, and if you're disobedient, you get God's fury on you. He says this, now you, teacher, say, quote, on the basis of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath for the day of the wrath and the apocalypse of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, who will pay back each and every one on the basis of his works. Now he alludes to Psalm 62, 12 here which, oddly enough, is a verse that highlights God's mercy, Elios in the Greek. And then verse 7, as you say, Paul is still now saying, as you say, he's using the force of this teacher, quoting the teacher's reasoning here. As you say, the teacher, on the one hand, God gives the life of the coming age to those who by persevering in doing good aim at glory and honor and immortality. Now, you tell me, is that Paul? God gives eternal life to those who by persevering in the doing of good seek for honor and immortality. I think Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 725, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that it is. I, got, I haven't got a leg to stand on, otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm screwed 
otherwise. I'm damned. I'll be damned otherwise. Or as I say when I'm really mad to myself, I'll be damned, no I won't. Now, verse 7, on the one hand, God gives the life of the coming age. Paul's saying this to him. You say, teacher, that on the one hand, here's the bifurcation of humanity into two groups. God gives the life of the coming age to those who by persevering and doing good aim at glory and honor and immortality. But on the other hand, the sheep and the goats, on the other hand, to those who through selfish ambition and disobedience of the truth obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Better watch out, rocket man. Wrath and fury. (laughs) Fortunately, not everyone reads the news. Nine. Then he says, the teacher's still talking now. Tribulation and distress upon every person's soul who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good. There's a problem here because in Romans 3.10, Paul says there's none that does good. So this is the teacher. Everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. To the Jew first, of course. And then he says, this is the teacher now, for there is no favoritism with God. Now, that's true. That's Deuteronomy 10, 17. Paul would agree all day long with him. There is no favoritism with God. But Paul wouldn't say there's no favoritism with God, so he's going to hammer everybody that does evil. Paul would say there's no favoritism with God, so he's going to save everybody. That's what Paul would say. So the teacher says, for as many as sin outside the law, that's outside the framework of Torah, that's Gentiles, will also perish outside the law. And all who sin within the law, that is within the framework of the law, will be judged by the law. And then in verse 13, Paul is also saying this to him. For according to your gospel, teacher... According to your gospel, preacher of Psalm, or of Romans 118 to 32, according to your gospel, it is not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That's what you say, teacher. I say in Romans 324, you're justified by grace through the redemption that is by Christ Jesus. Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not doing the talking. He's saying, this is what you say, teacher. Jiu-jitsu, he's taking the force of the teacher and using it against him. You see, the doers of the law would be justified by the law. Sounds like this guy's a little bit over in James's camp. I'll just let that lie for a minute. But if you see Romans 3.20, which alludes to Psalm 143.2, no one alive can be justified by any means. So certainly Paul said no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. So is there a contradiction here? Then Paul does something really strange here. There's a parenthesis around 14 and 15. The idea that to the deserving by good works, God gives eternal life is totally contradicted by Romans 6.23 and a hundred other verses, but Romans 6.23 is a good place to start. The wages of sin is death for all in Adam. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying that if what the teacher says is true for the Gentiles, it must also be universally true. Because as both he and his opponent agree, God is no respecter of persons. He's absolutely impartial. The teacher's gospel, however, involves a split, a bifurcation of humanity. Paul universalizes humanity as one entity. The teacher's gospel is a gospel of works. For him, works are the basis on which God will judge the Jew first and also the Greek. So it seems that there are Jews who sin within the framework of Torah. That means they have the law and they sin against the law. And are judged as well as Greeks who sin outside of the framework of Torah. Who've never received the law of Moses and who perish. But now Paul brings up a hypothetical category of Gentiles. Who do what the law requires as a response to their own conscience. In other words Paul says you know there's a whole bunch of Gentiles. Now what are you going to do with this now teacher? There's a whole bunch of Gentiles who don't commit adultery, who do not steal, who have laws against stealing, who have laws against adultery. There's a whole bunch of Gentiles here who do not commit murder and find that it's a foul thing to do. There are lots of Gentiles, in other words, who love their neighbor, care for their neighbor. So, Romans 2, 14 and 15 is a parenthesis. This is extremely important. Paul is making the whole te- the teacher feel a little awkward on his feet here because he says, okay, what about a hypothetical group of Gentiles who apart from the Torah are a personification of the Torah? Romans 2. 14. So this is parentheses, these two verses. So whenever Gentiles who do not have Torah, the law, instinctively do what the Torah requires, he says they are Torah themselves. He's actually saying they're the personification of Torah. And this sets up Paul for something later where he's going to say that Torah can be personified. It has been in Jesus Christ. The law The end of the law for righteousness is Christ. Christ is now righteousness for us. Verse 15, they demonstrate that the code of conduct required by the Torah is written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness among themselves. That means within themselves and among themselves, sociologically speaking. In other words, Their friends would say the same thing. Oh, you don't want to do this. You don't want to leave your wife. You don't want to leave your husband. You don't want to do this. You don't want to snow. You don't want to steal that Maserati. It's a very nice car. But you're going to have to stick with your Mazda. Not your Maserati. 
And they'll, they bear witness with each other. Their conscience bear witness among themselves. Their thoughts sometimes accusing. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't do that. Or defending themselves. I'm glad I did that. I should have done that. I did do that. So Romans 2, 14 to 15 is Paul's parenthesis, which introduces a category of Gentiles that puts the teacher in an awkward position. More than that, Paul is introducing the notion that will later be capitalized on that Torah can be personified. For example, Romans 10.4. Now, now listen carefully. We're going to go to the end of this now. Watch this. Watch how this works. If that's in parentheses, and it is, and it should be, then we can now detect a continuity between 2.13 and 16. 2.13 goes right into 16, as far as the teacher's philosophy, Paul just inserted that parentheses. Let's start with 2.13 again and go right to 2.16, which is the continuity. Look at what the teacher says. For according to your gospel, Paul says, it is not the hearers of the Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified by the law, verse 16, on the day when God judges the secrets of tonanthropon, people. According to, then he puts another parenthesis. According to my gospel, he does this through Messiah, Jesus. You'll find one thing this teacher never talks about is Jesus Christ. He sidelines him. He marginalizes Jesus Christ and his work. Paul emphasizes and centralizes Jesus Christ. So he says, the teacher says, on the day... When God judges the secrets of people, some will be justified and some will experience wrath. But what Paul says, on the day when God judges the secrets of people, and he believes there will be this day, in parentheses he says, according to my gospel, not yours, this will be done through Jesus Christ. And I reply to that by saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ that he judges me the one who died for me judges me. And he already has judged me by dying for me. So he acquits me. He acquits you. To that I can only say, therefore, in Romans 7.25, I thank God through Jesus Christ. So according to Paul's gospel, which is the gospel all about God's son in Romans 1, 1 and 2, the judgment of the secrets of all people will be through Jesus Christ who was delivered up for their trespasses and raised for their justification. How will the secrets of people be revealed? The fire of God's love will consume every wrong motivation, leaving everyone. Uh, This is so good. Paul agrees here that there will be a day when God will judge the secrets of people. It's when the Lord comes. Judge nothing until the Lord comes comes who will judge the secrets of men and then he says what and then every person will have praise from God not damnation praise why why will God praise every person because every person will have undergone the circumcision of Christ that was made without hands which means a justification by Christ's resurrection he that is a Jew inwardly is praised by God God's praise is of that person so in other words Paul says yeah there's going to be a day when the secrets of men and women are judged 
And that's the day when Jesus Christ will consume all that's against mankind and there will be a single saving outcome of judgment, according to my gospel. To shut this down, let's read Acts 17.31. Paul's speaking to Greeks. In fact, he's speaking to the heart of the Greek world. Athens, Mars Hill, the Symposium of Philosophers. Climax of his speech there is this, Acts 17.31. Inasmuch as he, God, has appointed a day in which he is about to judge the world. Now the Mirror Bible makes that very clear. He's about to acquit the world. Of humans in righteousness. Judge the world of humans in righteousness. That means he will judge them by exonerating them all. Because Christ died for our trespasses and was resurrected for our justification. According to my gospel, Paul's gospel. By a man whom he designated, an Andre Hoy Horizon, though he actually uses the word horizon here in Romans 1 4 also. Granting or giving, and the word is pistis here. Your translation says probably giving proof to everyone, giving evidence by raising him from the dead, but it's granting pistios, granting faith. To everyone, granting faithfulness to everyone, raising him from the dead. God granted faith to everyone, faithfulness to everyone, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Because have you not read where it says he was delivered up, handed over, paradidomy, used three times in the preacher's sermon, Romans 124, 126, 128, handed him over, he handed him over, he handed him over. Yeah, he handed over Jesus Christ for their sins. And he raised him up for our justification. According to my gospel, Paul said, all this is going to be done through Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead for our justification. So this day of judgment that's coming is a day in which all flesh will be justified by an act of God and no flesh will be justified by any of the acts of human beings. According to my gospel, you don't understand and neither do I. We haven't yet fully grasped what this gospel means, what this gospel means, because everything in the world in which we live contradicts it, including the majority of Christendom contradicts it. This apocalyptic gospel of unconditional universal grace all wrapped up in Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance and in his universally impacting crucifixion and resurrection. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I thank God. He let me live long enough to discover this. Instead of to leave me 10 years ago 
take me 20 years ago. He's let me do this. He's let me discover this. And we haven't even touched the surface. We haven't even, we got the tip of the iceberg. So thank you, Father. And I truly do before your throne tonight. I thank you, Father, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Who shall deliver us from this body of death? We sure can't do it ourselves. No politician can do it. No guru, no teacher. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we thank you for the privilege of enacting an act of worship, if we're motivated. And this is so important because no act of giving is acceptable to you unless it's motivated by total confidence of your generosity and that you will supply all the grace we need for all that we need to do in this life and then some. With this confidence we present to you, a sacrifice of substance.